19. I greatness with the universal prayer, which shows at least that Pope had considered, and judged himself, and that all further judgment is consequently superfluous. Jonathan Swift 1667-1745 In each of Marlowe's tragedies we have the picture of a man dominated by a single passion, the lust of power for its own sake. In each we see that a powerful man without self-control is like a dangerous instrument in the hands of a child, and the tragedy ends in the destruction of the man by the ungoverned power which he possesses. The life of Swift is just such a living tragedy. He had the power of gaining wealth, like the hero of the Jew of Malta, yet he used it scornfully, and in sad irony left what remained to him of a large property to found a hospital for lunatics. By hard work he won enormous literary power and used it to satirize our common humanity. He wrested political power from the hands of the Tories, and used it to insult the very men who had helped him, and who held his fate in their hands. By his dominant personality he exercised a curious power over women, and used it brutally to make them feel their inferiority, being loved supremely by two good women. He brought sorrow and death to both, and endless misery to himself. So his power brought always tragedy in its wake. It is only when we remember his life of struggle and disappointment and bitterness that we can appreciate the personal quality in his satire, and perhaps find some sympathy for this greatest genius of all the Augustan writers. Life. Swift was born in Dublin, of English parents, in 1667. His father died before he was born, his mother was poor, and Swift, though proud as Lucifer, was compelled to accept aid from relatives, who gave it grudgingly at the Kilkenny School, and especially at Dublin University. He detested the curriculum, reading only what appealed to his own nature, but, since a degree was necessary to his success, he was compelled to accept it as a favor from the examiners, whom he despised in his heart. After graduation the only position open to him was with a distant relative, Sir William Temple, who gave him the position of private secretary largely on account of the unwelcome relationship. Temple was a statesman and an excellent diplomatist, but he thought himself to be a great writer as well, and he entered into a literary controversy concerning the relative merits of the classics and modern literature. Swift's first notable work, The Battle of the Books, written at this time but not published, is a keen satire upon both parties in the controversy. The first touch of bitterness shows itself here, for Swift was in a galling position for a man of his pride knowing his intellectual superiority to the man who employed him, and yet being looked upon as a servant and eating at the servant's table. Thus he spent ten of the best years of his life in the pretty lure park, Surrey, growing more bitter each year and steadily cursing his fate. Nevertheless he read and studied widely, and, after his position with Temple grew unbearable, quarreled with his patron, took orders, and entered the Church of England. Some years later we find him settled in the little church of Larriker. Ireland, a country which he disliked intensely, but whither he went because no other, living, was open to him. In Ireland, faithful to his church duties, Swift labored to better the condition of the unhappy people around him. Never before had the poor of his parishes been so well cared for, but Swift chafed under his yoke, growing more and more irritated as he saw small men advance to large positions, while he remained unnoticed in a little country church largely because he was too proud and too blunt with those who might have advanced him, while at Larriker he finished his tale of a tub, a satire on the various churches of the day, which was published in London with the Battle of the Books in 1704. 
the work brought him into notice as the most powerful satirist of the age, and he soon gave up his church to enter the strife of party politics. The cheap pamphlet was then the most powerful political weapon known, and as Swift had no equal at pamphlet writing, he soon became a veritable dictator. For several years, especially from 1710 to 1713, Swift was one of the most important figures in London. The Whigs feared the lash of his satire, the Tories feared to lose his support. He was courted, flattered, cajoled on every side, but the use he made of his new power is sad to contemplate. An unbearable arrogance took possession of him. Lords, statesmen, even ladies were compelled to sue for his favor and to apologize for every fancied slight to his egoism. It is at this time that he writes in his journal to Stella, Mr. Secretary told me the Duke of Buckingham had been talking much about me and desired my acquaintance. I answered it could not be, for he had not yet made sufficient advances, then Shrewsbury said he thought the Duke was not used to make advances. I said I could not help that, for I always expected advances in proportion to men's quality, and more from a Duke than any other man. Writing to the Duchess of Queensbury he says, I am glad you know your duty for it has been a known and established rule above twenty years in England that the first advances have been constantly made me by all the ladies who aspire to my acquaintance, and the greater their quality the greater were their advances. When the Tories went out of power Swift's position became uncertain. He expected and had probably been promised a bishopric in England, with a seat among the peers of the realm, but the Tories offered him instead the place of Dean of Street Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. It was calling to a man of his proud spirit, but after his murder seal of satire on religion, in the tale of a tub, any ecclesiastical position in England was rendered impossible. Dublin was the best he could get, and he accepted it bitterly, once more cursing the fate which he had brought upon himself. With his return to Ireland begins the last act in the tragedy of his life. His best-known literary work, Gulliver's Travels, was done here, but the bitterness of life grew slowly to insanity, and a frightful personal sorrow of which he never spoke, reached its climax in the death of Esther Johnson, a beautiful young woman, who had loved Swift ever since the two had met in Temple's household, and to whom he had written his journal to Stella, during the last years of his life a brain disease, of which he had shown frequent symptoms, fastened its terrible hold upon Swift, and he became by turns an idiot and a madman, he died in 1745 and when his will was opened it was found that he had left all his property to found Street Patrick's Asylum for Lunatics and Incurables. It stands today as the most suggestive monument of his peculiar genius, the works of Swift. From Swift's life one can readily foresee the kind of literature he will produce. Taken together his works are a monstrous satire on humanity, and the spirit of that satire is shown clearly in a little incident of his first days in London. There was in the city at that time a certain astrologer named Partridge, who duped the public by calculating nativities from the stars, and by selling a yearly almanac predicting future events. Swift, who hated all shams, wrote, with a great show of learning, his famous Vicar's Taft Almanac, containing predictions for the year 1708, as determined by the unerring stars, as Swift rarely signed his name to any literary work letting it stand or fall on its own merits. His burlesque appeared over the pseudonym of Isaac Bickerstaff, a name afterwards made famous by Steele in the Tatler. Among the predictions was the following, My first prediction is but a trifle, yet I will mention it to show how ignorant those savage pretenders to astrology are in their own concerns. It relates to Partridge the almanac maker, 
I have consulted the star of his nativity by my own rules, and find he will infallibly die upon the 29th of March next, about 11 at night, of a raging fever, therefore I advise him to consider of it, and settle his affairs in time. On March 30th, the day after the prediction was to be fulfilled, there appeared in the newspapers a letter from a revenue officer giving the details of Partridge's death, with the doings of the bailiff and the coffin maker, and on the following morning appeared an elaborate elegy of Mr. Partridge, one poor Partridge, who suddenly found himself without customers, published a denial of the burial, Swift answered with an elaborate vindication of Isaac Dickerstaff, in which he proved by astrological rules that Partridge was dead, and that the man now in his place was an impostor trying to cheat the heirs out of their inheritance. This ferocious joke is suggestive of all Swift's satires. Against any case of hypocrisy or injustice he sets up a remedy of precisely the same kind, only more atrocious, and defends his plan with such seriousness that the satire overwhelms the reader with a sense of monstrous falsity. Thus his solemn argument to prove that the abolishing of Christianity may be attended with some inconveniences is such a frightful satire upon the abuses of Christianity by its professed followers that it is impossible for us to say whether Swift intended to point out needed reforms, or to satisfy his conscience, or to perpetrate a joke on the church, as he had done on poor Partridge, so also with his modest proposal concerning the children of Ireland which sets up the proposition that poor Irish farmers ought to raise children as dainties, to be eaten, like roast pigs, on the tables of prosperous Englishmen. In this most characteristic work it is impossible to find Swift or his motive, the injustice under which Ireland suffered, her perversity in raising large families to certain poverty, and the indifference of English politicians to her suffering and protests are all mercilessly portrayed, but why? That is still the unanswered problem of Swift's life and writings. Swift's two greatest satires are his tale of a tub and Gulliver's travels. The tale began as a grim exposure of the alleged weaknesses of three principal forms of religious belief. Catholic, Lutheran, and Calvinist. As opposed to the Anglican, but it ended in a satire upon all science and philosophy. Swift explains his whimsical title by the custom of mariners in throwing out a tub to a whale in order to occupy the monster's attention and divert it from an attack upon the ship, which only proves how little Swift knew of whales or sailors. But let that pass. His book is a tub thrown out to the enemies of church and state to keep them occupied from further attacks or criticism, and the substance of the argument is that all churches, and indeed all religion and science and statesmanship, are errant hypocrisy. The best known part of the book is the allegory of the old man who died and left a coat which is Christian truth to each of his three sons, Peter, Martin, and Jack, with minute directions for its care and use. These three names stand for Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists, and the way in which the sons evade their father's will and change the fashion of their garment is part of the bitter satire upon all religious sects, though it professes to defend the Anglican Church. That institution fares perhaps worse than the others, for nothing is left to her but a thin cloak of custom under which to hide her alleged hypocrisy. In Gulliver's travels the satire grows more unbearable. Strangely enough, this book, upon which Swift's literary fame generally rests, was not written from any literary motive, but rather as an outlet for the author's own bitterness against fate and human society. It is still read with pleasure, as Robinson Crusoe is read for the interesting adventures of the hero, and fortunately those who read it generally overlook its degrading influence and motive.
Gulliver's travels records the pretended four voyages of one Lemuel Gulliver, and his adventures in four astounding countries. The first book tells of his voyage and shipwreck in Lilliput, where the inhabitants are about as tall as one's thumb, and all their acts and motives are on the same dwarfish scale. In the petty quarrels of these dwarfs we are supposed to see the littleness of humanity. The statesmen who obtain place and favor by cutting monkey capers on the tightrope before their sovereign, and the two great parties, the Lilindians and Bajendians, who plunge the country into civil war over the momentous question of whether an egg should be broken on its big or on its little end, are satires on the politics of Swift's own day and generation. The style is simple and convincing, the surprising situations and adventures are as absorbing as those of Defoe's masterpiece, and altogether it is the most interesting of Swift's satires. On the second voyage Gulliver is abandoned in Brobdingnag, where the inhabitants are giants, and everything is done upon an enormous scale. The meanness of humanity seems all the more detestable in view of the greatness of these superior beings. When Gulliver tells about his own people, their ambitions and wars and conquests, the giants can only wonder that such great venom could exist in such little insects. In the third voyage Gulliver continues his adventures in Laputa, and this is a satire upon all the scientists and philosophers. Laputa is a flying island, held up in the air by a lodestone, and all the professors of the famous academy at Lakadu are of the same airy constitution. The philosopher who worked eight years to extract sunshine from cucumbers is typical of Swift's satiric treatment of all scientific problems. It is in this voyage that we hear of the Streldbrigs, a ghastly race of men who are doomed to live upon Earth after losing hope and the desire for life. The picture is all the more terrible in view of the last years of Swift's own life, in which he was compelled to live on, a burden to himself and his friends. In these three voyages the evident purpose is to strip off the veil of habit and custom, with which men deceive themselves, and show the crude vices of humanity as Swift fancies he sees them. In the fourth voyage the murder seal of satire is carried out to its logical conclusion. This brings us to the land of the Hoynhams, in which horses, superior and intelligent creatures, are the ruling animals. All our interest, however, is centered on the Yahoos, a frightful race, having the form and appearance of men, but living in unspeakable degradation. The journal to Stella, written chiefly in the years 1710-1713 for the benefit of Esther Johnson is interesting to us for two reasons. It island first, an excellent commentary on contemporary characters and political events, by one of the most powerful and original minds of the age, and second, in its love passages and purely personal descriptions it gives us the best picture we possess of Swift himself at the summit of his power and influence, as we read now its words of tenderness for the woman who loved him, and who brought almost the only ray of sunlight into his life. We can only wonder and be silent. Entirely different are his drop-ears letters, a model of political harangue and of popular argument, which roused in a thinking English public and did much benefit to Ireland by preventing the politicians' plan of debasing the Irish coinage. Swift's poems, though vigorous and original like Defoe's, of the same period, are generally satirical, often coarse, and seldom rise above doggerel, and like his friend Addison, Swift saw in the growing polish and decency of society, only a mask for hypocrisy, and he often used his verse to shop the newborn modesty by pointing out some native ugliness which his diseased mind discovered under every beautiful exterior, that Swift is the most original writer of his time, and one of the greatest masters of English prose, is undeniable, directness, vigor, simplicity, mark every page, 
Among writers of that age he stands almost alone in his disdain of literary effects, keeping his object steadily before him. He drives straight on to the end, with a convincing power that has never been surpassed in our language. Even in his most grotesque creations, the reader never loses the sense of reality, of being present as an eyewitness of the most impossible events. So powerful and convincing is Swift's prose. Defoe had the same power, but in writing Robinson Crusoe, for instance, his task was comparatively easy, since his hero and his adventurers were both natural, while Swift gives reality to pygmies, giants, and the most impossible situations, as easily as if he were a writing of facts. Notwithstanding these excellent qualities, the ordinary reader will do well to confine himself to Gulliver's travels and a book of well-chosen selections, for, it must be confessed, the bulk of Swift's work is not wholesome reading, it is too terribly satiric and destructive, it emphasizes the faults and failings of humanity, and so runs counter to the general course of our literature, which from Kenilworth to Tennyson follows the ideal, as Merlin followed the gleam and is not satisfied till the hidden beauty of man's soul and the divine purpose of his struggle are manifest. Joseph Addison 1672-1719 In the pleasant art of living with one's fellows, Addison is easily a master. It is due to his perfect expression of that art, of that new social life which, as we have noted, was characteristic of the age of N, that Addison occupies such a large place in the history of literature, of less power and originality than Swift. He nevertheless wields, and deserves to wield, a more lasting influence. Swift is the storm, roaring against the ice and frost of the late spring of English life. Addison is the sunshine, which melts the ice and dries the mud and makes the earth thrill with light and hope. Like Swift, he despised shams, but unlike him, he never lost faith in humanity, and in all his satires there is a gentle kindliness which makes one think better of his fellow men even while he laughs at their little vanities, to things Addison did for our literature which are of inestimable value. First, he overcame a certain corrupt tendency bequeathed by restoration literature. It was the apparent aim of the low drama, and even of much of the poetry of that age, to make virtue ridiculous and vice attractive. Addison set himself squarely against this unworthy tendency, to strip off the mask of vice, to show its ugliness and deformity but to reveal virtue in its own native loveliness, that was Addison's purpose, and he succeeded so well that never, since his day, has our English literature seriously followed after false gods, as Macaulay says, so effectually did he retort on vice the mockery which had recently been directed against virtue, that since his time the open violation of decency has always been considered amongst us a sure mark of a fool, and second, Prompted and aided by the more original genius of his friend Steele, Addison seized upon the new social life of the clubs and made it the subject of endless pleasant essays upon types of men and manners. The Tatler and the Spectator are the beginning of the modern essay, and their studies of human character, as exemplified in Sir Roger D. Coverley, are a preparation for the modern novel. Life, Addison's life, like his writings, is in marked contrast to that of Swift. He was born in Millstock. Wiltshire, in 1672. His father was a scholarly English clergyman, and all his life Addison followed naturally the quiet and cultured ways to which he was early accustomed, at the famous Charterhouse School, in London, and in his university life at Oxford. He excelled in character and scholarship and became known as a writer of graceful verses. He had some intention, at one time, of entering the church, 
but was easily persuaded by his friends to take up the government service instead, and like Swift, who abused his political superiors, Addison took the more tactful way of winning the friendship of men in large places, his lines to Dryden won that literary leader's instant favor, and one of his Latin poems, The Peace of Ryswick, 1697, with its kindly appreciation of King William's statesman, brought him into favorable political notice, it brought him also a pension of £300 a year, with a suggestion that he travel abroad and cultivate the art of diplomacy, which he promptly did to his own great advantage. From a literary viewpoint the most interesting work of Addison's early life is his account of the greatest English poet 1693, written while he was a fellow of Oxford University. One rubs his eyes to find Dryden lavishly praised, Spencer excused or patronized, while Shakespeare is not even mentioned. But Addison was writing under Boileau's classic rules, and the poet, like the age, was perhaps too artificial to appreciate natural genius. While he was traveling abroad, the death of William and the loss of power by the Whigs suddenly stopped Addison's pension, necessity brought him home, and for a time he lived in poverty and obscurity. Then occurred the Battle of Blenheim, and in the effort to find a poet to celebrate the event, Addison was brought to the Tories' attention. His poem, the campaign, celebrating the victory, took the country by storm, instead of making the hero slay his thousands and ten thousands, like the old epic heroes, Addison had some sense of what is required in a modern general, and so made Marlborough direct the battle from the outside, comparing him to an angel riding on the whirlwind, he was then great Marlborough's mighty soul was proved, that, in the shock of charging hosts and moved, amidst confusion, horror, and despair, examined all the dreadful scenes of war, in peaceful thought the field of death surveyed, to fainting squadrons sent the timely aid, inspired repulsed battalions to engage, and taught the doubtful battle where to rage, so when an angel by divine command with rising tempests shakes a guilty land, such as of late or pale Britannia past, come and serene he drives the furious blast, and, pleased th almighty's orders to perform, rides in the whirlwind, and directs the storm, that one doubtful simile made Addison's fortune. Never before or since was a poet's mechanical work so well rewarded. It was called the finest thing ever written. And from that day Addison rose steadily in political favor and office. He became in turn under secretary, member of parliament, secretary for Ireland, and finally secretary of state. Probably no other literary man, aided by his pen alone, ever rose so rapidly and so high in office. The rest of Addison's life was divided between political duties and literature. His essays for the Tatler and Spectator, which we still cherish, were written between 1709 and 1714, but he won more literary fame by his classic tragedy Cato, which we have almost forgotten. In 1716 he married a widow, the Countess of Warwick, and went to live at her home, the famous Holland House. His married life lasted only three years and was probably not a happy one. Certainly he never wrote of women except with gentle satire, and he became more and more a clubman, spending most of his time in the clubs and coffee houses of London. Up to this time his life had been singularly peaceful, but his last years were shadowed by quarrels, first with Pope, then with Swift, and finally with his lifelong friend Steele. The first quarrel was on literary grounds, and was largely the result of Pope's jealousy. The latter's venomous caricature of Addison as Etiqua shows how he took his petty revenge on a great and good man who had been his friend. The other quarrels with Swift, 
and especially with his old friend Steele, were the unfortunate result of political differences, and show how impossible it is to mingle literary ideals with party politics. He died serenely in 1719. A brief description from Thackeray's English humorists is his best epitaph, a life prosperous and beautiful, a calm death, an immense fame and affection afterwards for his happy and spotless name. Works of Addison. The most enduring of Addison's works are his famous essays, collected from the Tatler and Spectator. We have spoken of him as a master of the art of gentle living, and these essays are a perpetual inducement to others to know and to practice the same fine art. To an age of fundamental coarseness and artificiality he came with a wholesome message of refinement and simplicity. Much as Ruskin and Arnold spoke to a later age of materialism, only Addison's success was greater than theirs because of his greater knowledge of life and his greater faith in men. He attacks all the little vanities and all the big vices of his time, not in Swift's terrible way, which makes us feel hopeless of humanity, but with a kindly ridicule and gentle humor which takes speedy improvement for granted. To read Swift's brutal letters to a young lady, and then to read Addison's dissection of a rose head and his dissection of a coquette's heart, is to know at once the secret of the latter's more enduring influence. Three other results of these delightful essays are worthy of attention. First, they are the best picture we possess of the new social life of England, with its many new interests. Second, they advanced the art of literary criticism to a much higher stage than it had ever before reached. And however much we differ from their judgment and their interpretation of such a man as Milton, they certainly led Englishmen to a better knowledge and appreciation of their own literature, and finally, in that softly the literary dabbler, Will Wimbledon the poor relation, Sir Andrew Freeport the merchant, Will Honeycomb the fop, and Sir Roger the country gentleman, they give us characters that lie forever as part of that goodly company which extends from Chaucer's country parson to Kipling's Mulvaney. Addison and Steele not only introduced the modern essay, but in such characters as these they herald the dawn of the modern novel. Of all his essays the best known and loved are those which introduce us to Sir Roger D. Coverley, the genial dictator of life and manners in the quiet English country. In style these essays are remarkable as showing the growing perfection of the English language. Johnson says, Whoever wishes to attain an English style, familiar but not coarse, and elegant but not ostentatious, must give his days and nights to the volumes of Addison, and again he says, give nights and days, sir, to the study of Addison if you mean to be a good writer, or, what is more worth, an honest man, that was good criticism for its day, and even at the present time critics are agreed that Addison's essays are well worth reading once for their own sake, and many times for their influence in shaping a clear and graceful style of writing, Addison's poems, which were enormously popular in his day, are now seldom read. His Cato, with its classic unities and lack of dramatic power, must be regarded as a failure, if we study it as tragedy, but it offers an excellent example of the rhetoric and fine sentiment which were then considered the essentials of good writing. The best scene from this tragedy is in the fifth act, where Cato soliloquizes, with Plato's immortality of the soul open in his hand, and a drawn sword on the table before him, it must be so Plato, thou resunst well, else whence this pleasing hope, this fond desire, this longing after immortality, or whence this secret dread, and inward horror, of falling into naught, why shrinks the soul back on herself, and startles at destruction, tis the divinity that stirs within us, tis heaven itself, that points out and hereafter, 
and intimates eternity to man. Many readers make frequent use of one portion of Addison's poetry without knowing to whom they are indebted. His devout nature found expression in many hymns, a few of which are still used and loved in our churches. Many a congregation thrills, as Thackeray did, to the splendid sweep of his God in nature, beginning, the spacious firmament on high. Almost as well known and loved are his traveler's hymn, and his continued help, beginning, when all thy mercies, oh my God, the latter hymn written in a storm at sea off the Italian coast, when the captain and crew were demoralized by terror shows that poetry, especially a good hymn that one can sing in the same spirit as one would say his prayers, is sometimes the most practical and helpful thing in the world. Richard Steele 1672-1729 Steele was in almost every respect the antithesis of his friend and fellow worker, a rollicking, good-hearted, emotional, lovable Irishman. At the Charter House School and at Oxford he shared everything with Addison, asking nothing but love in return, and like Addison, he studied but little, and left the university to enter the horse guards. He was in turn soldier, captain, poet, playwright, essayist, member of parliament, manager of a theatre, publisher of a newspaper, and twenty other things, all of which he began joyously and then abandoned, sometimes against his will as when he was expelled from Parliament, and again because some other interest of the moment had more attraction. His poems and plays are now little known, but the reader who searches them out will find one or two suggestive things about Steele himself. For instance, he loves children, and he is one of the few writers of his time who show a sincere and inswerving respect for womanhood. Even more than Addison he ridicules vice and makes virtue lovely. He is the originator of the Tatler and joins with Addison in creating The Spectator, the two periodicals which, in the short space of less than four years, did more to influence subsequent literature than all other magazines of the century combined. Moreover, he is the original genius of Sir Roger, and of many other characters and essays for which Addison usually receives the whole credit. It is often impossible in the Tatler essays to separate the work of the two men, but the majority of critics hold that the more original parts, the characters, be thought, be overflowing kindliness, are largely Steele's creation, while to Addison fell the work of polishing and perfecting the essays, and of adding that touch of humor which made them the most welcome literary visitors that England had ever received, the Tatler and the Spectator, on account of his talent in writing political pamphlets, Steele was awarded the position of official gazetteer, while in this position, and writing for several small newspapers, the idea occurred to Steele to publish a paper which should contain not only the political news, but also the gossip of the clubs and coffee houses, with some light essays on the life and manners of the age. The immediate result for Steele never let an idea remain idle was the famous Tatler, the first number of which appeared April 12, 1709. It was a small folio sheet, appearing on post days, three times a week, and it sold for a penny a copy. That it had a serious purpose is evident from this.